Hello and welcome to the Keen on Things podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Keen. The best 30 minutes of sleep and show business. Two years in on this podcast, started during the pandemic, going strong, I guess, doing more stand-up now, which is nice. And with this podcast and the diary-type reading and entry that it is, uh, it does help help open up the door to stand-up and not being so married to a script, being married to one-liner jokes or two-minute bits. There's more fluidity to the stand-up, I think you'll find, if you come check it out. What do I know? The past few weeks, doing a lot more stand-up. It's been great. I did have to turn down a cruise ship gig, a nice offer, last week. It was last minute, of course. Uh, but someone must have canceled on them. But we have an event coming up for my work, and if I were to take a second week out of three weeks off to be gone for, it would just put my team in a tough spot. Uh, once the golf tournament is over, it'll free me up toward uh, travel and be able to do more shows, and that'll be great. And then we'll roll into summer. Okay, so this show is brought to you by Script Pipeline. I've talked about it before. They are the gateway, right, for writers all over the world to get into the entertainment business, either through film, television, various forms of art. Uh, this company is so cool. They said I could stop reading the entire copy and just say, hey, Next deadline for script pipeline, TV and film, any, any script you have, screenplay, is March 1st for scripts and TV shows. Okay, so that's Tuesday. Boy, I, I, I hope they're ready for an influx of submissions after announcing it on this podcast, right? Tonight, tomorrow, you got about uh, 30 hours from now. Scriptpipeline.com, right? That's where you can find it all. The service connecting your writing to the entertainment industry world. Thank you, Chad. Uh, okay. So much going on here. I'll tell you a movie, many movies playing out now in uh, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, the Russian border with Ukraine. So much going on. Russia going in, heading west, right? Putin on the hits. Wants to get the Soviet Union band back together. And who can blame them, right? Those were the good old days. A lot of gold medals. It is funny that this just took place right around the Winter Olympics. So Putin's probably like, we had a lot more. As the Soviet Union, we had a lot more medals than this. We're going in. We're going in. He should have done it before the Olympics, though, to claim all the Ukrainian medals. I don't know if Ukraine won a lot or not. Ukraine wants to join NATO. NATO stands for not another teen operation. Um, and Putin ain't having it, right? You ain't having uh, I don't want NATO parked right next to my border. He's testing it. He's testing to see how far the world will go to defend Ukraine and his actions going in. Uh, that's how I see it. Because not a lot of people want to do the actual fighting in this generation. Uh, whether it's America, especially white America, or whether it's uh, anywhere in the world, you know. Even third world countries where it's poor, they have access, they have cell phones, they have internet, they see things. And just because you're poor doesn't mean you want to go to war any more often, you know. Uh, so, yeah, whether it's Americans going to the Middle East, Israelis who don't want to go into Palestinian territory and possibly lose their life there, you know, because uh, they know the situation that is, and uh, they don't want any part of it. You know, people get desperate and they're like, oh, I'll take a rich... I'll take a soldier from a rich country with me if I'm going to die anyway. Why not? Uh, okay. Putting on the hits is like, let's see who'll stop me. That's what he's doing, right? He can afford to have a million or so killed, maybe more. And then if there's too much international pressure, pull back, right? 
and sit, get thrown out by whatever forces uh, come into play, and then live his life wherever in a laxed minimum security incarceration situation, right? Pablo Escobar, minimum security, could kind of still carry on life. Um, you know, if you take a look at Idi Amin and Pol Pot and the later parts of their lives, those two murdering dictators, they got to spend their last years living in exile, but living, right? They lived long lives, old age, and they weren't in a cell, right? They had pretty nice arrangements, and they murdered millions. Combined, they murdered millions. Pol Pot is at about 1.5, 2 mil, somewhere between 1.5 and just over 2 million. Idi Amin, uh, in Africa there, Uganda, was at about 500,000. Pol Pot being in Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge. So, yeah, Idi Amin, half a mil. Okay, that is five L.A. Coliseums full, capacity crowds. Not a section of the stadium. That's the L.A. Coliseum, about 100,000. That's five of those. That's how many people he had killed. And Pol Pot was about three to four times that. They got to live to old age, 78 years old for Idi. Idi Amin died in Saudi Arabia. Pol Pot lived into his early 70s. He lived 20 years after the Khmer Rouge was defeated in the late 70s. I don't know. Was he on the run all that time? Was he in hiding? I can't really tell. I'm, I'm reading up on it. I, I don't know if he was on the run all the time. It looked like he was on the run at the very end. Um, and then did he poison himself because he was about to be captured? Or did uh, someone feed him something so he would die to protect him from being brought in for true jail time true imprisonment i read a little into it today it's dark stuff it is so dark the power thing murder once you desensitize from that first murder sickly you're unstoppable because your conscience you're like all right so i'm just not going to pay attention to this anymore at all because it's just going to haunt me hamlet or i'm sorry macbeth you read that scottish stuff you read macbeth lady macbeth which the thing should have been called the Macbeths, but that was his first name. Was it his first name or was it his family name? I don't know. Um, but that's what it is, right? What you can go on to do. It's like the mind is like, well, I'm in so deep now. I might as well keep going. Kind of like the scene in Heat where the three guards of the Bonds, they kill two of them. And then they're like, well, I got to kill the other one. We don't want to witness. So they just kill the third. So in a way, kind of that lie or forced blindness from what you've just done keeps your mind safe from processing the horrors. You lying about, or not lying about it, but just ignoring your conscience and just continuing to kill, it keeps your mind safe from the horrors of that first murder. These are, these are men who did it to their own people. Pol Pot, Idi Amin. Like Stalin, their own people. Hitler obviously did it to everyone else. I'm sure some. I'm, yeah, I'm sure he had many of his own killed. But but my God, at first especially. Um, but then went on to do every other country. Japanese did it to Koreans and Chinese. Which yeah okay we'll get to that okay so where in history is the mark where you kind of needed to stop doing this by? Where in history? Where in history? Probably the late 1800s. Do you want to say that? I'd have to talk with a history professor. You know, 
where are you in the clear, right? Napoleon got in under the radar. Late, t- late 1700s, early 1800s. Um, is he still being seen heroically? I think he might be. I've never been to France. I don't know. Columbus, changing. That's changing. Andrew Jackson with native culture here in the U.S., changing. You know, pe- people do not care. Columbus now is not, yeah, that's not well embraced. And Andrew Jackson even is uh, from his time as president or in the military. In the, I mean, that guy was in the Battle of 1812. Was he in the Revolutionary War as a kid? And I think he got that scar from like an English officer, and he just wore it with pride all his life. And then what he did to native cultures there in the 1800s. Genghis Khan, does he get a pass? Do we joke about these people? How far back do we go? Because what we did to native culture in the States is horrific. But but we can, to a great extent, try and justify it by saying, hey, we were all animals at that time. All these people, all these cultures, all these governments, all these militaries, we were animals and the world was up for grabs. Okay? For, that's kind of the argument. That, that's a big argument. Uh, and it's not like the natives were getting along. Native American tribes were getting along here before we came. So that those are the two. Those are two big arguments. 1492, 1610, 1670. So world still up for grabs, kind of. All these nations, flo- Spain, France, the Dutch, the English, on ships, floating around the world, claiming territories, slaughtering natives. All right. 1757, French-Indian Wars. All right, the French and the Indians are battling uh, the English, kind of up there. That's last the Mohicans' time, right? But where it gets ugly is late 1800s for me, right? Wounded knee, all that stuff right after Colonel Mustard. Colonel Mustard, (laughs) Custard's Last Stand, great book. Him and, uh, God, what's that? Crazy Horse and Custard is an amazing book. Is that Stephen Ambrose? I don't know who wrote that, but it's amazing. Um, cause it's like, okay, late 1800s and Custer man was a maniac. It's like, okay, we clearly can see that this land is going to be easily ours. We we have technology, our number of troops that we brought over from Europe that we have here over the last, by that point, 200 years, um, 250 years, advanced weaponry, chemical warfare, it all falls under technology, right? Guns, gunpowder, uh, you know, smallpox, right? Oh, man, having blankets that had smallpox on them, giving them to Native American families, which, why did they need blankets from us? They knew how to protect themselves. Um, and then we knew they were going to get them sick and kill them. Oh, my God, that's so dark. Uh, so that's the big thing. Did we need to take the slaughter into the late 1800s? Hell no. Hell no. It was decided at that point. It's a great line in Dances with Wolves. Kevin Costner talking to the Native American chief, and he's like, how many are coming? And he's like, man, you can't stop. And he's like, how many are coming? And he's like, like the stars. Look at the stars. Countless, and that's, that's what's coming. So at what point does accountability come into play? Japanese occupied Korea from 1910 to 1945. They had a war with Russia in 1907, 1908. They defeat Russia. I don't know how you defeat Russia. They'd been building up since the Meiji Restoration after uh, 1868, and the samurai culture was kind of dead, which is covered in the movie, the Tom Cruise movie, The Last Samurai. 
then they start getting militant and being like, oh, and they build up their arms. So by 1907, they take on Russia. They're like, cool, yeah. And once you win, it's like, why would we stop? Let's go see what else. We just beat Russia. We're going to go take Korea. Uh, and let me tell you something. Korea, still not cool with it. It's gnarly. I lived in Korea for a year. I lived in Japan for two years. I was in Busan in Korea. Busan. Uh, it was a P, now it's a B, but the pronunciation is somewhere in between. I don't know why. They sh- they did that with Jeju too, Jeju-do. And I was there in Busan there on the port. We just got off a ship. Um, I was with two Japanese students. I was a student myself, college. We were all university students. We walked into a Korean restaurant at lunchtime on a weekday. It was bustling, and the guy knew we just docked and gotten off a ship that came in from Japan, and he says, we're all out of food straight-faced we're out of food we're looking at people dining eating clearly there's more dishes being served (coughs) they weren't out of food at all that was 1994 okay so that was only 15 years after uh the end of world war ii which liberated korea and all those south uh east asian countries as well where japan i mean japan was in what indonesia they were getting into india they were in singapore they had uh southeastern china i mean I don't know. I hope Japanese and Korean relations are softer now. But uh, it was crazy. We're looking at people being f- a bustling restaurant, small place. It took me a second to register. The other, the students knew right away, the Japanese guy. And we walked out of there looking at each other, and we were like, uh, okay, they def don't want us in there. <laughs> had I gone alone, would have been interesting. I'm sure they would have had me. I probably could have sat and ate. But once I was with them, it was over. I had met those two guys uh, on the ship coming over from Japan, which is great. Leaving uh, Nagasaki, you leave Nagasaki and you go to uh, Korea on a ship. It's an all-nighter. If it's really slow, or you can get on the uh, express, which is fantastic too. It's three hours, which I recommend. Um, I met a lot of servicemen when I lived in Japan and Korea. U.S. We have bases in both countries. Very interesting, man. Traveling a country or a region that I'm a student in, but other fellow Americans are living there too as soldiers. Just crazy. You compare notes. Man, I loved it. I love college campuses. As I as I was writing this up today, I got nostalgic about Kumamoto, Gaku and Daigaku, my college in Kumamoto. Uh, they built a new library while I was there, and I just used to sit and dwell and read. And, and they had little, you could rent like discs, movies, and watch them in little booths. Um, and I loved it, man. I just could stay there all day. I, uh, but you know, you only have two years. So it's like, how much do I stay and study this language and how much of the world do I get out and see? How much of this country do I get and get out and see? I often don't know what I'm doing in the U S I was so happy in Japan. Uh, anyway, I'm happy here too. Okay. So how far back can we go and not hold these conquerors to task? Who knows? I think now with a very socially aware populace, nobody gets a pass. And we'll see coming out of all this. It just seems like uh, nobody's getting off the hook now. And excuse me, history's really being scrutinized. We're halfway through this episode. And uh, it's just, uh, you just hope the right people get the proper uh, coverage. And we don't burn people at the stake. Okay, Um, Kazakhstan, South America, Sicily, the Crusades, Northern Ireland, Look, I had a girlfriend in college from Kazakhstan, and she said pre-Genghis Khan, because Genghis Khan came from Mongolia, and he went into Kazakhstan, which is southwestern Russia, right there, 
And he invaded and conquered and raped and pillaged, and he changed the bloodline. The people of her country were reddish hair, green and blue eyes. Then Genghis comes from Mongolia, and he has more of a desert North Asian look, and he changed the bloodline of the entire country of Kazakhstan forever. And they're not bitter. Why would they be, right? It's what they look like. It's who they are. It's part of that history. It's, it's not like they're saying, had he not come here in 1220 or, or whatever, we'd still have the lighter skin and overall look. They're not like, oh, shucks, we don't look that way. So that's, you know, probably pretty healthy just to be like, all right, that's how it was. South Americans probably don't hate the Spanish like many native North Americans probably hate English, French, and Dutch. Okay? They mixed more. They're like, hey, we're part Spanish. It was uh, native South Americans mixing with Spanish, and that's how they are. We just needed to mix more in the Northern Hemisphere. We should have mixed it more, you know, and there's plenty of mixed race, native white culture up here. I mean, pure blood. What's, what's the population of the U S that's pure native American. Is it 1%? Is it five? It can't be more than 5%. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I can't imagine Sicilians hating Africans, right? Descendants of the Moors, North Africans, you know, great scene in true romance, great scene, Dennis Hopper and Christopher Walken in, uh, did Oliver Stone and, and Quentin work on that together, that movie? Uh, the Crusades were like 1,100 to 1,300 European armies went into the Middle East and Turkey, tried to take Jerusalem back from the Arab community. And I'm sure many Jewish people were killed as well in that. I think Jewish and Arab culture had to work together to fend off Christian European armies. Um, now, I believe, I haven't been to Turkey, but it's half Christian, half Arab, literally East meets West. That's what I've been told from people in Turkey. Northern Ireland, where Irish are now outpopulating the English in Northern Ireland, Unionists, the Protestants, right? In the 70s, England wanted to give it all back to Ireland. Okay, they'd had that Bloody Sunday incident in Londonderry, and there's a a Beatles song or a Paul McCartney song that says, uh, give Ireland back to the Irish. I think his uncle or his grandparents in Liverpool were from Ireland. But England wanted to give Northern Ireland back to Ireland. But Northern Ireland, the English there, wanted to remain under Protestant rule. They wanted to stay with England. They were like, don't abandon us. So England kind of has to honor that. People had been there hundreds of years. Um, And then I, I had read that reparations were made for that Sunday Bloody Sunday incident. 2018, it was decided that the families from the Londonderry shootings would be compensated Hopefully that helps with some damn thing, right? You just hope that there's some healing there. Uh, the whole black and tan thing at a Irish uh, pub as opposed to a bar. That's, I think, I hope that's quelling. I've talked to people on both sides. I've talked to English, I've talked to Northern Irish, and I've talked to Irish, and it's like, ah, we're, you know, we're in 2000. 17, 18, 20, whenever I've had these conversations. Um, but that's a sticky spot. England wants to do what they felt was right and end it all peacefully. And the Northern Irish are like, now we want to be ruled by you. Then Ireland hates you. And it's like, Ireland, look, we were trying, man. What do you want from us? So with this new population outgrowth in Northern Ireland, we'll see what changes in the next 30 years. Will they get their Irish up once they have the majority and just start passing new laws left and right, dominating the polls and every election? And who knows? And then just changing policies. And then 
if you're descendants upon descendants of English or Northern Irish and you're living there, are you going to get squeezed off? Are you going to get squeezed out of Northern Ireland? Who knows, man? Uh, it's a similar situation with the Israeli-Palestinian issue, right? Let's say in 25 years, the Irish of Northern Ireland outpopulate the English. They shift the polls, elections, overhaul old laws and place in new ones. But then if the Irish government then went to Canada and the U.S. and Australia or wherever to track down anyone of Irish descent, no matter how far and long ago, and say, hey, if you want to come home, home, I'm from here. No, if you want to come home to Ireland, Northern Ireland, you can have a house there. We would just need to drive out an English family or a Northern Irish family and you'd have a second home. We're going to drive out a Northern Irish family who bows to the queen and a family that's been there for hundreds of years. I'd be like, no, that doesn't solve it for me. I, no, driving people out of their homes so that I can have a second home, a second residence, a second home, like I own a home here. You know, I don't know England or Ireland or Gaelic, but that's what's happening in Palestine. That's what the settlements are. Violation of the pre-1967 borders. Violation of UN resolution. The same UN that helped form Israel 20 years prior to that. There's an illegal occupation going on. The same thing we're fighting for with Ukraine is what's been happening in Palestine for decades. Illegal occupation, illegal blockade. People can't get in or out. Goods can't get in or out. Aggressive Israeli foreign policy wants it to happen fast so they can get, then they can get, start getting distance on it all happening and say, oh, well, it's too late now. We can't go back. That was years ago. That was last year that we, you know, kind of just drove out all Palestinian rule. And now this is all just Israel making it too hard to ever go back. Right? It's a good strategy. And Jewish people the world over can go back there to Palestine and get real estate as Palestinians are marched from their homes. They're kicked out of their homes that they've been in for generations, man. It's unreal that this is being allowed. And Jewish people who've lived in the U.S., South America, Europe, all over the world, but never lived in the Middle East, can go there and get property at the expense of native Palestinians. I was working with Mo Amer in Arizona. He opens for Chappelle. He's a Palestinian comedian. He's funny as hell. He's got a special... This guy, Palestinian, somehow his family makes it to England. So he's a kid growing up in England and learning the English accent. Then he moves to Houston, and he's a chubby little Palestinian kid with an English accent in Houston, Texas, and everyone thinks he's Mexican. So he has to learn English in a hurry. And all the while, his mother's dressing him up in bow ties, and he's getting the shit kicked out of him by every race until he's like, Mom, let's cool it with the bow ties. Like, this is a whole new. I'm not at a little private prep school in England anymore. Anyway, we were working together, and J.R. Redwater, Native American comedian, was passing through, a friend of mine. And uh, he's like, hey, can I do a guest spot? Can I do five minutes at one of the shows, you know, before the show starts, kind of as it's starting? Guest spot comedians are in the neighborhood, five, ten minutes. And so I asked Mo Amr, and he's like, uh, man, I'm Palestinian. You think I'm going to deny a Native American from stage time? Hell no. Yeah, he can do this show. So that was cool. That was fun. And then uh, we had a Canadian guy opening for us. It was a really fun night. House of Comedy in Scottsdale years ago. I think it was 2015. Anyway, um, so that's what is, is afforded to Jewish people worldwide. 
and but I am reading you read now more and more American Jewish people Jewish people all over the world are against the Israeli foreign policy in that respect which is good right I mean you have Jewish folk worldwide who don't necessarily speak Hebrew they get to go over and take the homes of indigenous people people who speak Arabic those are Semites taking homes and land from Palestinians is anti-semitic Semites are people who speak Hebrew Arabic or Aramaic a Jewish family in Beverly Hills or the Valley or wherever who doesn't speak Hebrew aren't Semites by definition. I'm not wrong on this. Okay. Uh, a lot of the argument is that Palestine doesn't recognize Israel's right to exist. One, they do. They do now. Okay. As it was forming, they'd be like, no, you don't deserve to be here. They do recognize. Okay. Two, who cares? Who cares who recognizes and who doesn't? If the UN recognizes, it's there. You're there. It's been voted on. It's passed. You got a flag, you got Olympics. Whether Palestine recognizes it or not, doesn't it matter? Israel exists and it ain't going anywhere. I'm sure there are native cultures here in America who don't recognize the U.S. and would never stand for the flag. But we don't go and take more of their land or torture them or hold it against them and be like, no, you need to come on. Come on. You need to fess up and say that you do recognize the U.S., we need to rub it in your faces. And three, Israel doesn't really necessarily recognize Palestine's right to exist. Go look at a map from 1947 to 1967 to today. Palestinian land has disappeared. It was two chunks, Gaza and the West Bank, and they were always talking two-state solution. So it would be one country in two parts, like Canada separating Alaska and the U.S., but that's still the U.S. Israel would separate Gaza and the West Bank, West Bank being on the eastern side. Not the West Bank of Manhattan, which I made the mistake of going to a West Bank restaurant thinking in Hell's Kitchen that it would be Palestinian food. It was just the West Bank of Manhattan that they meant. So that was a fun funny. Both Palestinian territories are illegally occupied. Israeli forces come and go and do whatever they please in those communities, in those neighborhoods, in those lands. They can arrest, they can detain without cause. Kids. And Gaza's worse. Now it's to the point where most people realistically are like, there's no two-state solution that can exist, so it'll be one piece of land, most likely called Israel, but Palestinians will outnumber Israelis and rock any democratic vote, which is why Israel wants and needs as many Jewish citizens establishing residency in Israel as possible. And the U.S. is complicit in all of it and helpful in all of it. Israeli and Jewish lobby in the U.S., very powerful. U.S. gets to use Israel as a depot, a land base, you know, a stopover in the Middle East. Keep an eye on everything. An uncertain region that we keep, that we help keep uncertain in many ways. I'm not wrong on this. Um, coming out of World War II, there needed to be a rescue land for European Jews, right? There needed to be something. What an atrocity they just endured. America didn't get involved nearly soon enough in the European theater. There's a story, a ship called the MS St. Louis was a ship out of Germany in 1939 carrying about 950 people, many of them Jewish. The captain was German. He was trying to get Jewish citizens to safety. Brought the ship across the Atlantic. They were denied in Cuba. They were denied in the U.S. They were denied in Canada. The ship's captain was possibly going to run the ship aground around Florida. He's like, I'm just going to run it into the ground, and then the U.S. will be forced to take people in 
But the U.S. knew of that possibility. They had ships riding along the coast to prevent that. SMSTL, SM St. Louis, returned to Europe. Many of the passengers put in concentration camps. Many of them perished. They were on our shores, man. They were on U.S. shores. So where's that movie? Just brutal, terrible, right? They were on our shores. Turned away. Meanwhile, the Negro Leagues were thriving, especially the Kansas City Monarchs, which is where the Negro Baseball Museum is. Another good possibility for a movie there. Same state, both Missouri. Opposite ends. Why is that? Why did I just put that in there? Oh, I guess just more persecution throughout history of people. Yeah. So it does tie in. Um, coming out of World War II, maybe Israel should have been put in Germany. Like take a t- chunk of Germany, make that Israel. Or a larger chunk of the state of New York. Um, you know, in all seriousness, I don't know. This is kind of a pipe dream, though. The Zionists wanted Jerusalem and the Middle East Palestinian area back from the late 1800s. Check out the Balfour Declaration sometime from around World War I. It's fascinating stuff. Um, the Vatican is its own country. Didn't Israel deserve their own country? Did the people already occupying that land, the Bedouin, Palestinians, do they not get a say? Why didn't they get a say? Right? It's a very difficult situation, still very complicated. Or maybe it's not. Maybe we just need to be human beings and forget about religion. <gasps> right? We've made it more difficult. You can understand Jewish heartbreak and outrage coming out of World War II. My God, six million. Unfortunately, the wrong people have to pay for those Nazi sins and atrocities. Arabs and Jews worked together to fend off European expansion during the Crusades. Hopefully it can happen again. I think it can. Jewish Voice for Peace is a great organization in Oakland uh, and many other activists. So now we're concerned with Ukraine and Russia. And Russia as the occupants, as the occupiers. Very similar to the Israeli-Palestinian situation. We'll see if combat, I'm sorry, we'll see if global sentiment can stop Putin on the hits. Uh, and then as we put the, the lens on more global crimes like these, will Israel be forced to back off? Who knows? Ukrainians uh, hanging in there, right? They know this has to be stopped now because Putin takes Ukraine. He can take neighboring countries, grows in confidence. He just smells more blood in the water, uh, gets a little momentum. We'll see in this new age how things can be shaped, what social media can do, what frickin' GoFundMes can do to help Ukrainian uh, communities. It's crazy, man. My brother, my buddy Brian's over there right now. He just had to get out and get to uh, Poland, Warsaw, um, and they've got all kinds of uh, anyway. They've got all kinds of good footage, um, meaningful footage that they're going to try to put together as you know, raising morale for the Ukrainian people. Um, yeah, Ukraine has world sympathy and probably a ton of Russian sympathy. Russian civilians don't want this. The protests have been amazing, spirit lifting. The internal pressure hopefully can last. Um, you know, it's, it's, this occupation and takeover thing is, uh, tune as old as time. Is that the, is that the expression? Different for Native Americans if the right to return and all this stuff. Because they've been here in their land the whole time, so they have nowhere else to go. You know, they weren't displaced or thrived. So that'd be different than it would be for, let's say, Jewish or Irish returning to Northern Ireland. Um, 
It's not like Native Americans were displaced and thriving in, say, Tasmania, okay, or Bangladesh, and then they were offered a return to America. Hey, we know you're doing great here, but would you want your old land back from the 1400s? So like in a thousand years, would whites all have to get marched out of their homes and sent back to Europe? <laughs> I'll tell you, man, who knows? Who knows, right? Um, how power shifts over the centuries. So in closing, uh, how long, you know, how long has this been going on? We're at 32 minutes ago. How long do we hang on to all these individual religions? At what cost? At some point, we all have to meet halfway in the middle and abandon some of this religious history, right? There's just not going to be enough room for all of it anymore. It's too specific, and it just keeps us separated. And as it gets more and more crowded, trying to stay separated becomes more of a chore and just evil, wrong stuff happens. And nations and races that have effed over other nations and races it, it all needs to be taught. It needs to be admitted to and known. And I'm a white male heterosexual in the safe confines of the U.S. I don't have a clue what it's really like. It's all very easy for me to say. But I'm not wrong on a lot of this. And I'd love to be able, we all would love to be able to look back at all these past crimes someday in the future, far off, as human beings, being as objective as possible and with enough distance on it to have as clear of heads as possible. You know, we can hang on to all this or we can let so much of it go, all of it, by letting it go, still paying the respect it deserves and never forgetting, but moving forward as a species and studying why it went down, why it all went down and clicking our glasses to it never happening again. All right. Thank you for listening. Keen on Things podcast, Patrick Keen, uh, Keen of comedy on all social media platforms. We'll see you next time.